0: I'm Michael Foster.
1: And I'm non-tenant, and you're listening to It's Good to Be a Man, the podcast where we are extending God's house and father rule by helping men to establish their own houses in strength, skill, and wisdom. What are we talking about today, Michael?
0: This is part two of an episode that we originally called The Creation Mandate, but we, we changed it to match our notes, which is that the, the title now is The Doxological Purpose of Sex. So this is the second part.
1: So you've made the title more confusing and hard to understand for people. <laughs> what, is doxolo- what is doxology?
0: Yeah, exactly. Doxology has to do with worship, how we worship God. And so basically we're saying how sex is worship, how our sex, uh, male, female, everything, all the interactions between the sexes, how that plays out in worship and doxology. So we agree with the catechism that man's chief end, that is purpose or telos, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the foundation of our understanding of sex but it finds its expression in the creation mandate and that's why we use that as the the original title Uh, and that's what we talked about in detail last episode but in this episode non the b is silent is going to (laughs) lead as we discuss how that uniquely plays out in both sexes So not once you take us into this episode, uh, back us up a little bit and and get us where we're going.
1: All right. Well, we've got a, a surprising amount to cover, actually. So in order to do that, let's recap. Mankind was made in the image of God to continue the work that we saw God himself begin in the first six days where he's ordering the world and he's doing that through forming and through filling. So forming involves dividing and subduing and building, and filling involves creating life and nurturing and knitting things together. And what we're going to do is we're going to plant on this, this kind of twofold idea today so that we can go fairly deep into the patterns of what is the image of God. And we're going to use what's called biblical theology. Now I I need to explain very briefly biblical theology because I've come across a lot of guys who are looking at our content and we talk about biblical theology and they think what it means is theology that comes from the Bible. Well, if it was just theology that comes from the Bible, that would kind of be a redundant term. You wouldn't need to say biblical theology. I agree. It's not the greatest term. A better term would be historical redemptive theology or redemptive historical theology. Biblical theology is the way I explain it to my kids is if you look at systematic theology that's looking at the doctrines of christianity and how they fit together into a logical system biblical theology is where you look at the patterns and the motifs and the themes and the structures within scripture and how they are repeated and developed across the bible and what we can take away from that and the meanings that we can uh, glean from those deeper structures that start to come out and you and i both love biblical theology way more than systematic theology because systematic theology once you know it you know it and it's kind of boring whereas uh, biblical theology there's always a new thing that you haven't seen because the bible wasn't just written by men, it was written by god and there are all these things in there that just couldn't possibly have been put in there (laughs) without an overarching plan right
0: it helps it's a lot biblical theology is kind of like the movie and systematics is like the cliff notes that summarizes everything and so they work together they're not at odds
1: no and if you don't have that richness you end up with a reductionistic truncated understanding of a lot of things including gender roles and we've had to deal with that from a few fairly aggressive people in the past and so we're going to basically look at the biblical theology of sexuality today the biblical theology of the image of god and I think what we need to do is approach this backwards because we actually need to look at the creation of Eve before we can really appreciate the creation of Adam. And hopefully that will become clear as we go through this. Let's look at, first of all, women were created second. Woman, Eve, was created from the man and brought to the man. And what we see here is a really important principle that on the surface just seems like a kind of incidental, Accidental feature of the text. But what we find when we look deeper is that the principle being articulated here is the feminine comes from the masculine, it's distinct from the masculine. But its purpose is to have union with the masculine. Now, this is something which uh, I think that you and I actually both got this from Mauser, Bill Mauser, uh, his excellent book, The Story of Sex in Scripture. Uh, Alistair Roberts also talks about this. So, if you're interested in this kind of idea, then two men who both love biblical theology and sexuality and are worth investigating. But the idea is that the, the feminine is derived from the masculine. It is created to have union with the masculine. So it comes back to the masculine. And this union is is what we call love. It's um, my preferred term is one togetherness. Paul calls it the bond of perfect unity in Colossians. So you have the idea that male and female, therefore, if you think this through, you get this idea that male and female are an image of the creator and creation distinction. What God is doing when he creates Eve from Adam is a microcosm of what he already did in creating the world. So
0: let me back you up real quick. Yeah. What is a microcosm? Why don't you just give a a quick explanation?
1: (laughs) Well, if you think about, for example, a great example is a household and a kingdom. A household is a kingdom in microcosm. You have the patriarch, you have the mother, you've got the children. Uh, A kingdom is that on a grand scale. So it's... A household in macrocosm uh, kingdom has a patriarch the king it has a queen the mother it has the citizens underneath the children and so a microcosm is basically just a smaller version of something which has already been established or mm. you can work the other way a macrocosm is a bigger version of something that's already been established
0: mini cosmos uh, A mini
1: cosmos well said So when God creates Eve from Adam, that's a microcosm of what he already did when he created the world. The world came from him. The world is distinct from him. That's a really clear theme in scripture, the distinctness of the world, which is very different from pagan cultures. And the world also has the purpose of union back with him. And that's a theme that's expressed very memorably. I think any Christian would uh, recognize this because that's essentially what John 3.16 is saying. Now, this goes back to the idea that we talked about last time, that the physical image is the spiritual. And Mauser is really good on this point as well. He argues that when we talk about God being anthropomorphic, what we should really be saying is that creation is theomorphic. Creation reflects God. God doesn't reflect creation. God condescends to us to reveal himself in creation. So everything seen is a representation of something unseen. And the principle of male and female doesn't originate in Adam and Eve; it originates in God and creation.
0: So that's a that's a good example of why we have to refer to God the Father as God the Father, right? It's we're not actually using the human father as a metaphor to explain God's nature, but uh, man's nature as a father is explained because God is a father, and we're acting like him. We're bearing his image that way. He's that's the right. archetypical father. Yeah. And we tend to forget that because for us, the fatherhood
1: of God is primarily revealed through what it means to be a father as a human being. And so we tend to work the other way and we think, oh, well, you know, the the fatherhood of God is just a, a reality, which is in itself in God is a metaphor. Fatherhood is really something human and God is like that. Whereas really it's fatherhood is something that is God and humans are like that.
0: So this this links to uh, some other symbols we find in scripture and the first one I have to admit when I read it in a Mouser's book weirded me out a little bit but the more I thought about it it actually started to make sense and what's that first symbol
1: it weirded me out too because it's the link between the earth and the womb. So this happens multiple times. It's not a coincidence. This is how the Hebrews thought. In Job, he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. Now we know he didn't think he was going to return to his mother's womb when he died. He's talking about, um, he's reflecting the language of the curse. Um, To dust you shall return, right? So he's linking the idea of a womb and the earth And the same thing in Psalm 139, 15, David says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. We read that and we think, what the hell was David thinking? Surely even people back then realized that you weren't created in the depths of the earth and sort of magically transplanted into the womb at some point. Well, no, they didn't think that. They just intimately linked the womb and the earth. And you see this in the New Testament as well, because for example, Paul uh, I think Romans eight is a really great example, and we'll kind of go back there in a minute, but the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and so the the earth is depicted as a woman who is waiting to give birth in the resurrection. The second image is wells and women. So you've got the earth and you've also got wells. Of course, wells come up from the earth. Uh, It's a spring of water that comes from the earth. At the most fundamental level, you can see how this makes sense. Water symbolizes life and fruitfulness, which is clearly connected with Eve. She was the mother of all living. The woman in Song of Songs 415 is described as a garden fountain, a well of living water. Isaac and Moses both meet their wives at a well. Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at a well. And that meeting of Jesus, I think the idea of that in John, John is very big into his biblical theology and preaching through John is what got me into biblical theology in a huge way. John is bringing out this motif because he wants to bring us to another important symbolism of water. In the scripture, wells may be associated with women, but water is associated with spirit. So Eden is presented in Genesis 2 like this pregnant earth being watered by a spring, which splits into four rivers. And the spring itself is like the spirit of God, which is hovering over the face of the earth. And so we've got this, this confluence of ideas, which bring us to the idea that women and spirit are in some way related. And where I'm going with this is that the same attributes that we associate with women are attributes that are most closely associated with the spirit of God. So let me give you a few examples. Women bring forth life. They draw people together. They establish close bonds of community. They nurture and knit together. Now the Spirit brings forth life. He raises Jesus from the dead, Romans 1. He gives birth to us in regeneration, John 3. He brings us into one togetherness with God. We're one Spirit with him, 1 Corinthians 6.17. And in one Spirit, we're all baptized into one body, 1 Corinthians 12.13. And that body is what nourishes and knits us together in Colossians 2 and Ephesians 2. Now, I mentioned Romans 8 before. In Romans 8, Paul mixes the groaning of creation in childbirth with the groaning of the Spirit interceding for us, and Jesus being the firstborn of many brothers. And one of the interesting things about Trinitarian theology as well is how the Spirit never draws attention to himself, but he always points to the Son, while the Son gives the Spirit this really unique place. So in uh, in Mark, Jesus forgives any sin against himself, but he will not forgive those who blaspheme the Spirit. Mm -hmm. And this also reflects the fact that women are to be gentle and quiet. The Spirit doesn't call attention to itself. But we give them greater honor as the weaker vessel, and they are in a genuine respect the capstone of creation. Men are the glory of God, but women are the crown, the glory of man. So my thesis is basically this. Women are associated with the spirit. Eve, femininity, women are associated with the spirit. And we touched briefly last time on how Adam, masculinity, men are associated with the son. And then we've got this clear Trinitarian connection with Adam proceeding from God and Eve proceeding from God and Adam. We see Eve is made from Adam just as the son proceeds from the father and the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. So there's this whole nexus of ideas that suggest that women are a reflection and image, not purely of the spirit of God. It's not intended, I think, to be this kind of hard and fast Trinitarian reflection, but women are associated with the imaging of the spirit.
0: And I think that's an issue we have to address is that scripture doesn't Things don't always map onto each other in a one-for-one way. And so we, we, as Enlightenment-produced people, we really want to have these careful
1: categories where everything fits neatly into its box, and that just isn't how Scripture, and it isn't how God works.
0: So uh, in this uh, second segment, what I want to talk to you about today is something a little bit different. Uh, Before I started, it's good to be a man with non- I had a now defunct website and podcast called Reforming Fatherhood, Masculine Parenting in a Feminine Age, and really it was kind of the precursor to this show, and I realized that I wanted to deal with broader topics than just fatherhood. Anyhow, I asked a friend of mine who's a very talented producer to make me an intro for the show, so he made me two intros, and he emailed them to me. Here's the first one. You're listening to the Reforming Fatherhood Podcast. Masculine parenting in an effeminate age. Here is your host, Michael Foster. So I dug it. It had that nice sort of rock and roll upbeat. You know, that was kind of cool at that time a couple years ago. Uh, But like I said, he made me a second one. And here's the second one. You're listening to the Reforming Fatherhood Podcast, masculine, parenting, in an effeminate age. Here is your host, Michael Foster. So as you can see, uh, he had a, he had two very different interpretations. And I so- think it's
1: interesting that you don't mention your friend's name after playing that second one.
0: <laughs> well, my friend Eric Sam. <laughs>
1: Oh, Eric,
0: my friend Eric Tuff and Sam of of uh, a very talented guy of the Curb Squirrels, a punk band back in the day. You can find him on YouTube, but he also does Kevin and the Octaves. So I recommend you check him out on Spotify and on YouTube. They've been on a lot of different TV shows. But I'd like to know which one do you prefer. Let me know on Twitter at This Is Foster. And I also want to thank those of you that have taken the time to leave reviews on iTunes. And uh, from time to time, we're going to highlight some of the Medsworth said, I highly enjoy the work of this ministry in an age where the majority culture gives poor solutions to our sexuality. This podcast is not afraid to defend masculinity as it should be and makes it clear and that it's joyful to be a man. Thankful for this podcast and the confidence it gives me. Well, we're thankful for men like you, and we hope uh, this is helpful. And we really appreciate all of you that take the time to leave us a review, and we'll keep spotlighting them on the uh, different episodes. So thanks. So we start with Eve there. We start with the woman. How about uh, Adam or, or men?
1: Okay. Obviously, man was created first. He's from the earth. He's brought to the garden. The woman was created from the man, brought to the man. Man's created from the earth. And brought to the earth. Now, I think what this shows us, well, it shows us a few things. Let's start with the fact that man is made to represent God most directly. He's made first. This isn't an accident. This indicates his priority. Just as Jesus has his headship over the church, because he is the firstborn of many brothers. So Adam has headship over humanity because he is the first created. This is the logic that Paul follows in 1 Timothy 2.13. I mean, it's very clear that this is what he sees in the creation pattern. Now, this headship involves ordering the garden by working it and guarding it in Genesis 2.15. And we tend to read this and just see horticultural or agricultural language.
0: Adam the gardener.
1: Adam the gardener, right. But it's not. It, It is agricultural, but... It's actually interesting that the language used here is repeatedly used elsewhere in scripture as a kind of priestly um, pastoral role. So uh, Alistair Roberts, has, <laughs> I keep mentioning Alistair Roberts, but he has a really good article on the shepherd and what it means to be a shepherd in the Old Testament. And my thought when I read that was he makes this really good point about how shepherd was a god, a shepherd was a kind of violent man, a man of zeal. And it occurred to me that one of the things that might be helpful, I'm always looking for ways to change up translations so we can get a, a better idea in the English of what something means now that we've become completely inured to a word or a word has changed its meaning too much. And if you were to translate shepherd as cowboy in the Old Testament, I think you'd actually get a much clearer picture of the kind of man and the kind of job that he has. This is a man who is entrusted with guarding and keeping and protecting and he's a rough man he's able to hold his own in a fight he's you know he's all of the classic manly attributes that you see in cowboys there's a reason cowboy movies are still popular today i love them <laughs> as do i uh just watched the latest clint eastwood movie which isn't technically a cowboy movie but you know clint eastwood uh, he's,
0: he's always a cowboy exactly <laughs> yeah so, All right. Going.
1: the language that we see in genesis 2:15 is actually priestly language it's used of the priests uh, the work that they do in the temple
0: and yeah, i want to back up that's that's actually really helpful because this is another problem we have to look out for so we said we don't want to we we have to be careful importing our modern tendencies into scripture so there's not this one for one mapping on of concepts and allegories but also i and maybe this is because of my blue collar up upbringing and because i've watched a lot of pop culture movies but i tend to think of, of priests as weak men right and yeah and and so i do think it's helpful for us to say well this is something like a cowboy right they're they're shepherds they're, they they can lay down they're tough guys right they can they can mix it up when they need to so again i think just as an interpretive or hermeneutical issue this is another thing that's very important as we come to scripture so a lot of our modern problems theologically speaking are because we're, we're not actually re- letting Scripture speak, but we're importing a lot of ideas into it. So we have to root those things out.
1: It might be helpful to think of it in terms of Adam being created to do this hard, tough, manly work, and the work that he's doing is his worship. So he's created in this garden temple to do this manly work. So let me give you a quote from G.K. Beale. He wrote a book called The Temple and the Church's Mission, a Biblical Theology of the Dwelling Place of God. And pages 66 to 67, he says this, the same Hebrew verbal form used for God's walking back and forth in the garden also describes God's presence in the tabernacle in Leviticus, Deuteronomy and Samuel, 2 Samuel. Genesis 2.15 says God placed Adam in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. The two Hebrew words for cultivate and keep are usually translated serve and guard elsewhere in the Old Testament. It's true that the Hebrew word, usually translated cultivate, can refer refer to an agricultural task when used by itself. When, however, these two words occur together in the Old Testament, they refer either to Israelites serving God and God and God's word, or to priests who keep the service of the tabernacle.
0: Okay, so that's why Adam's failure is so significant. He failed basically to guard the garden from the serpent, and he failed to guard Eve from, or keep Eve from sin where do we go next
1: well what we need to recognize here is that adam directly reflects god his body was formed from the ground and then god breathes into him the breath of life and there's a contrast here with eve eve reflects adam and god she's formed from his body so man is birthed from the earth and woman is birthed from the man But then, afterward, man is birthed from woman again, creating this kind of symmetry that Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 11 to 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as the woman was made from man, so man is now born from woman, and all things are from God. So he's drawing that all together.
0: I have an idea. I have a thought Hmm. that I want to mention because I feel like we have to deal with hermeneutics. But I remember when the first time I saw The Sixth Sense, have you seen that movie by. uh, M. Sure Night I am. Lama Ding Dong. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the one. So, you know, he hasn't made very many good movies since then. But in that movie, you realize that he's a very skilled director that every single thing in that movie is on purpose, right? He uses the the color red was very important, just like the color yellow is important in the village. So what you would when I first read Genesis, the fact that Adam was made from dirt and the woman was made from flesh that meant very little to me. But all these things, Moses is a very skilled writer. The Holy Spirit inspired him. All these things are twisting together, right, and building towards this uh, big purpose. Like, I don't know. I think that's amazing. I think that's – we should be looking at Scripture and saying, God, every word, every every part of Scripture is inspired, and there's some sort of purpose behind it. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: It reminds me of the way that Paul just kind of breaks into an explanation, an exclamation of praise and amazement sometimes as he's writing his letters. You can see why he does that.
0: It's amazing stuff. So, how does this all? Okay, so pull all the threads together.
1: Okay, creation is feminine. God is masculine. This principle is recapitulated within the creation itself. Man represents God. Woman comes from him and is brought to him to create this perfect bond of unity, this one togetherness. And if that's the case, and we've said that woman tends to image the spirit of God, we'd naturally expect man to lean more toward imaging the son of God. And that's what scripture tells us. It's exactly what it tells us, the image of God in the ancient Near East, as we mentioned last time. Was explicitly associated with divine sonship, with representing a deity's name into the world. And I should pause and mention an important point here. When we think of sonship, here's another example of the way that we import our Western assumptions. When we think of sonship, we tend to think of a kid sitting on his father's knee. In the ancient world, sonship was really entered into as an adult. In fact, Galatians, Paul talks about how Israel was really under a, a master until it came of age. So a son wasn't really a son until he was grown up and could carry his father's name into the world and represent his father's interests. So that's what Adam is doing. And Luke three thirty eight explicitly says Adam was the son of God. So just as the Holy Spirit is associated with generation, with regeneration, with nourish, nourishing and knitting things together. So the son is associated with working and with guarding and with dividing. You know, it's the son who does the work his father gives him. That's what we see Jesus doing. He divides the sheep and the goats. He keeps and guards his flock so that none are lost. It's the son who is the captain of Yahweh's army, who goes through the land of Egypt, dividing the Egyptians from the Israelites and putting them to the sword, who rides the white horse to war against God's enemies with a sharp sword. It's the sun who is building his house, the true temple made up of living stones, while he's simultaneously working to put all of his enemies under his feet. In fact, the two are basically the same thing. In our forthcoming book, uh, you know, we talk about how men order the world through conquering and women order it through comity. And this is an image of the roles of the sun and the spirit.
0: Let's back up for a second because you and I had all sorts of discussions about comedy. It's not comedy. Want you to tell me what that <laughs> word means? Because I, it, we were we were searching thesaurus and dictionaries looking for a good word to explain it. How do how, trying how, to figure
1: it out? Right? I, was
0: it? I can It may have been Smokey, your wife, that uh, suggested or had thoughts on it. Anyway, what does it mean? Oh, I,
1: I think that she didn't like it as much as I did. Uh, <laughs> Comedy is essentially an atmosphere of social harmony. It's civility, courtesy, um, the kind of bringing together, the knitting together of society is how I would paraphrase
0: it. So Pottle says that, Man is about separating and dividing, and woman is about integrating and communing. So you can see that conquering is about separating and dividing, just like God separates the the creation, and uh, and then the Spirit brings form to it. So the woman is about integrating and communing, even as the Spirit brings us into relationship with the Father through the Son. So these ideas all run through the big story, the big plot points of Scripture.
1: That's right. You could say that the way that man and women image God is actually drawn together in the middle in the forming aspect. Man divides and builds in order to form things and women fill and knit together in order to form things. And what they form mutually is greater than the sum of what they could have done individually.
0: That makes a lot of sense. So why does this matter? The big so what? (laughs) That's what we always have to ask. So we, we, it's, we're not just trying to be theology geeks here that like biblical theology and all these little interesting things that we find in the text of Scripture. All, these, uh, all theology is practice. All practice is theological. So why does it matter?
1: Right. And that is the $60,000 question because you don't want to just be, as you once accused me, a floating brain. And biblical okay. theology, I mean, ultimately, biblical theology matters because God put it there. And so it has to matter, but we're made to reflect and represent and worship God. And if we don't know how to reflect and represent him, how can we work to get better at it or worship him rightly? So for instance, this is something which has been on my mind a lot lately because I've had a lot of pushback from certain people about women being made in the image of God. If you don't think that women are made in the image of God, how can you claim to know those aspects of God which women are expressly made to image? I think it's really interesting, without getting too polemical, the people who deny that women are made in the image of God tend to be the ones who have what uh, Paul tells Timothy is the form of godliness while denying its power. You know, where does that power come from? The power of godliness? Paul expressly tells the Corinthians it comes from the spirit. So the the people who don't see the image of the spirit in women are the same ones who seem to not have the spirit themselves. You know, what a surprise. But ultimately, we need to be fluent in scripture's language of sexuality. We need to be attentive to its images so that we can pursue our own sexuality in the way God wants us to, and also so that we can appreciate and direct our wives' sexuality uh, in the way that God wants them to. It's not that we should sharply separate men and women. Like we said, There, there isn't this really sharp divide. So sometimes there are distinct tasks that men have or women have, and never the twain shall meet, you know, um, obviously being in the priestly role, the pastor role, is not given to women. Going to war is not given to women. Having children is not given to men. These are just obvious distinctions that need to be respected and carefully uh, managed. (laughs) Managed might not be the right word. But sometimes it's the other way around. Sometimes, as I said, the, the idea of forming comes together in the middle. And we have this complete one togetherness that God brought out. For instance, when Paul says uh, the Lord is the spirit, well, what are you going to do with that? Second Corinthians three seventeen. So we need to hold these intention. We need to know where our strengths are. We need to know where our wives strengths are knowing where we must work separately and where we must work together so that we can glorify God most fully in our labor. We need to have wisdom about these things because the image of God is ultimately captured in man and woman as one flesh. It's this harmonious whole where two distinct pieces fit together into one, just as, you know, God isn't just the Son. He isn't just the Spirit. He is the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That's God. And so if we want to fully order the world to reflect God in a way that completely glorifies Him, then we have to be cooperating together, working together, uh, achieving this one togetherness.
0: Well, that's very helpful. Now, brothers, I know a lot of you want practice. You just are looking for tips. You're looking for steps you can take to live out your manhood in a way that glorifies God. And we're definitely going to get to that. But we truly believe that doctrine drives practice.
1: All right. Until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love.